I run into a lot of folks these days who have disaffiliated with the church, okay? I run in every week, I run into somebody who has disaffiliated with the church. They've unplugged, uh, they have unsubscribed, and they usually have some kind of story. Oh, you know, the church fired the pastor that I really loved, or, oh, they're hypocrites, or, oh my goodness, they're so judgmental about this particular group of people. And so they usually have reasons, and the reasons are usually negative, why they've disaffiliated or why they've unplugged from church. And, and I'll hear a lot of them use this phrase, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, Max, Pastor, Max, I still love, I believe in God, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, I just don't, the church is not part of my life. And there's not a week that goes by that I don't have coffee with somebody. I'm not at a chamber event where I hear this come out of somebody's mouth. And as someone who's a pastor and who's been to a lot of biblical training, I don't know what to do with that. I just don't because in the Bible, the Bible talks about the church as being the actual body of Christ in the world today. Like, so all believers together are the actual body, the very real presence of Jesus in the world today. Um, Romans 12, one body. 1 Corinthians 10, one body. 1 Corinthians 12, the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, the body of Christ. Hebrews 13, the body. And then the body again in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 1. And again, in the New Testament and in the Bible, when you read the word you, you and I have this tendency to think, me, God's speaking to me. You know, when it says, you know, God loves you, you think, you go, oh, God loves me. This is awesome. I love me. God should love me too. And, or maybe you struggle with that and you're in therapy, okay? But but like whatever the thing is, right? And so we have this tendency to think you is you singular. Now, because we're Southerners, we have a pluralized version of you in English, all y'all. That means more than five people, all y'all, okay? And so every time that you see the word you in the Bible, you should probably substitute all y'all. So 1 Corinthians 12, all y'all together are Christ's body, and each of all y'all is a part of it. And you see how this kind of comes alive when you do that. Now, on the one hand, I want to acknowledge, yes, the church has erred, the church has sinned, the church has hurt people, the church at times has been a bad witness, full stop, no arguments. But on the other hand, I want to ask a simple question. How can you or I or anyone truly experience God's love apart from his body? In a very real sense, it's kind of like a disembodied love, a kind of from my generation, a Casper the friendly ghost Jesus floating around the forest, right? And so (laughs) some of you know the song. Okay, so I want to share with you today something that's kind of un-American and very countercultural, and that something is this. The most profound experiences of God's love are often found in relationship and communion with other believers who are often very different from you, very different. And you experience God's love in a very profound way. At the end of my sophomore year of college, uh, the job that I had that summer was to repair and renovate RVs that had been brought into an RV dealership. So 
you know, mom and pop Smith would come in and get their new RV and trade in their old RV. And we had to make the old RV look like it had never been used for camping. <laughs> okay. That was our job. And I commuted into this town with my father who had a job in that same city and who helped get me the job, that summer job revamping RVs. But I finished two hours before he finished. So I had two hours to kill waiting for my dad to be done with work so that we could commute home together. And one of the pastors who had kind of taken me under his wing at that time was a pastor at the First Baptist Church, Richmond, Indiana. So I would have an open uh, invitation to come to the church and hang out, read, pray. And so I would often go to the upstairs fellowship hall and just pray. And I remember being in that room and praying really hard uh, one uh, late afternoon, God, I just want to I want to feel your presence. I want to know that you're real. I want you to put your arms around me. That was my prayer, okay? And in that moment, I felt like Jesus was with me in that fellowship hall of First Baptist Church. But as coincidence would have it, that same fall, I met Jenny, who later became Jenny Vanderpool, and who that fall literally put her arms around me. I don't think it's a coincidence, and I think those prayers were actually connected. God, I want to feel your presence. I want you to put your arms around me, right? And so I think those things are connected. I think they're connected. Um, Tim Mackey says this, there are depths and dimensions of the love of God that are impossible for us to experience if we're not regularly around other followers of Jesus who are different from us. Um, and I would say to you, Jenny and I could not be more different. <laughs> if you know Jenny, if you know me, and, and here's the thing, isn't it ironic, if you think I'm hug resistant now, for those of you that know me, you should have known the Max Vanderpool of 1988. And for that Max Vanderpool to be praying to God, Lord, I want you to put your arms around me, like that's a bold prayer, Janice. That's a really bold prayer for that kid to be praying. So over the past several weeks, we've been walking through Paul's letter to Ephesians. And Ephesians is one of 13 letters that we have from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And one of the big ideas of this particular letter is this idea of apocalypse or apocalypto. So Paul, Paul was totally clueless about Jesus' real identity as the Messiah, as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Paul was on his way to Damascus to arrest followers of Jesus because in his mind, they were messing everything up. But on the way to Damascus, what was hidden became revealed. And he saw Jesus for who Jesus really is. And it changed everything, okay? And that's at the heart of this letter. And today we're gonna to be looking at a prayer that Paul expresses in the middle of this letter where he's asking that the Ephesians might experience God's love and God's power. And it's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. So I'll read it, and then we'll go through it a few verses at a time. Paul says this, When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he'll empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will go down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. 
Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. So Paul has been writing in the first three chapters about what this apocalypse is and what it's revealed and what it's done. And it's done this amazing thing. It's taken Jews and Gentiles who hated each other, like no two groups of people could hate each other more, and brought them together as one family in Christ Jesus, where now, instead of hating each other, they love each other deeply. And that love and those gatherings manifest God's presence in a very real way, okay? And so, and so this prayer is kind of a, oh, and I just want to pray this for you because he's been talking about these things and what God does when Christ is revealed for who he is. And so when I think of all of this, that's what I just talked about, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything on heaven and on earth. Now, I normally love the New Living Translation, and in this particular verse here, you're not getting some things Paul is really talking about. And so I've got the Greek up here, but I've, I've done the, the Eeyore word-for-word -word translation on the bottom with no interpretation at all, okay? So, and if you were doing it that way, what Paul says, from whom is named every family in the heavens and on earth. And Paul is saying that God's got a heavenly family and God's got an earthly family. Now, this heavenly family is like Psalm 89, Isaiah 40, the holy ones that we've talked about a few weeks ago, these heavenly beings, okay? And then God's earthly family is made up of human beings who are people, men and women, who are in Christ Jesus, okay? And Paul is saying that God names every family group, like in Genesis, and that naming means that God's exercising power and giving these families classification and identity, okay? From whom is named every family in the heavens and on earth. So we lose that a lot of times in our English translations. And then Paul prays that all y'all would be powered, all y'all would be strengthened, all y'all would be rooted and established in love, all y'all would have the Messiah dwell in all y'all's hearts, and that all y'all would grasp and experience the love of the Messiah. So let's walk through that. I pray from his glorious unlimited resources, he'll empower you with inner strength in his spirit. Paul is talking about the core of your being. The Hebrews had a word for this, your heart, okay? The, the core you. He wants you to be strengthened in the core you. And he doesn't have in mind the kind of self-help stuff that we Americans love, Right? We want to live a better life. We want to become a new person. We watch some TED Talks. We buy a book. We go to a conference. We resolve that we're going to develop some new habits. And then about 30 days later, our spouse says to that, what are you fooling with this for? You're not going to change anyway, like, right? And we kind of throw it out the window, okay? Because that's a hard way to change yourself. It's a really hard way to change yourself. And Paul is kind of signifying here in this verse that, there's something that only God can do, where God is at work on the inner core of you that transforms you from the inside out, okay? And in the next verse, then Christ will make his home in your hearts. Now, this is the only verse in the Bible that comes even remotely close to this American phrase we love to use, ask Jesus into your heart. 
So we like to talk about that as Americans. We use this phrase, but it's not in the Bible anywhere. And Paul has something completely indifferent in mind. Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. When God chooses to dwell somewhere, God comes as God. When Jesus comes to dwell in your heart, Jesus comes as Jesus. And who is Jesus? God, which also means that Jesus is Lord and King. And so when Jesus comes to dwell, he comes, wants to come on his terms. Now, because we're Americans, we don't like that, Don. We don't. We like to do this thing with Jesus where we're like, hey, Jesus, I want you to come in and, you know, the water heater got busted last Thursday and I don't have an emergency fund. And if you could drop some money from heaven, that would be really cool. And my sister needs healing and it would be great. I would love for my boss to be kinder to me because I think my boss is just a jerk. And if you could do these things in my life, that would be great. Thank you very much. And those are, those are appropriate requests, okay? So I don't mean to belittle the request. Those are right and appropriate to ask God for things. But often as Americans, we want to maintain our freedom and our autonomy. We love these things as Americans. I'm the boss of me. I make the decisions for my life. And I want God in my life, but I kind of want him more as a helper and as a coach. <laughs> but when God comes in and God dwells, God comes as who? God. <laughs> and so that's going to have some implications in our lives. And then in the second part of verse 17, your roots will grow down. Okay, rooted and established. And this harkens back to things in Isaiah 40 and 1 Kings 7 about establishing. Um, this speaks to permanence and a real anchoring. So Paul wants them to know and experience God's love. And this is going to prepare them to live it out. And he talks about how to live it out in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of this letter. And then in verses 18 and 19, he's got this wonderful phrase. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. Now, that's more than three dimensions, I think, or something, you know, and you know, he's not talking about measuring God's love. And he says it here uh, in verse 19, may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. In other words, part of what Paul is saying is, I want you to know that which cannot be known. I want you to know that which cannot be known, but you can experience it. You can experience it. And they did in the first century because you had... Uh, Jews and Gentiles, slave, free, rich, poor, and they were all together in house churches, loving each other profoundly. And in that context, they were like, God is real. Jesus is the Messiah. This is amazing. <laughs> it had that quality to it. And so Paul is saying, you can experience God's love in a very real and palpable way. I want you to know that which cannot be known, but can be experienced. And then he goes on to this doxology in the next couple of verses. Um, now glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. God can accomplish more than all y'all ever ask in prayer and more than all y'all can ever imagine. I got a front row seat to this in the last couple of weeks with Roy, the guy who fixes and services my mowers. So I go to pick up my mower and I'm all excited because now I can mow my lawn. You know, who's not excited about that? I'm kidding, oh, okay? 
So I get, pick up my mower and I ask him, can you help me load this into the truck? And as we're lifting it up, I'm like, you know, Roy, you, you know, seem retired. Like, can I ask how old are you? And he goes, I'm 85. And I was like, dude, I wouldn't have asked you to help me put the mower. He says, oh, what do you, you know, and got it kind of offended. And, and as the mower's in there and I'm strapping it down, he can't help. He said, well, you know, I just need you to know something. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, it was actually a couple of months ago, I had these spots on my heart and my doctor was all concerned because it was this, you know, I was going to have to have surgery and I had my family praying. He said, you know, and I just kind of, you know, I prayed, you know, God, I want to keep fixing mowers because I want to keep, you know, loving people and, you know, witnessing to you. So I, I want to keep fixing mowers. So however that works, God, I don't know. And so he went in for his pre-op set of tests and they do the tests and, you know, his, he's going to have surgery the next week. And uh, so the, the, the next week when the Monday comes around, they call to confirm the surgery and the time and all the prep work that he has to do. And they say to him, Roy, uh, we've canceled your surgery. And he's like, you told me I needed that surgery. I was going to die. And they were like, well, yeah, the, the new set of tests, like all the spots are gone. Like you don't need to have surgery now. And so this is what he says to me. I prayed this thing and then God did this thing. <laughs> and then he's like, do you believe in God, Max? <laughs> what I wanted to say in that moment was apparently not enough. <laughs> apparently not enough. And I, I say to him, Roy, you don't just fix mowers, do you? And then the big broad smile comes on and he says, no, I don't. I'm on a mission. And I said, yes, you are. And how many mowers have you fixed this week? And how many times have you? Yep. So God can accomplish more than all y'all can ever ask in prayer and more than all y'all can ever imagine. Paul's prayer here is about deepening our commitment to each other and discovering God's love. And Paul knows that you can experience it in profound and deep ways in the body of Christ, the church. Okay? So let me ask some questions in light of this prayer in Ephesians. And the first question is simply this. When was the last time you were truly amazed by someone else's love for you? When was the last time you were truly amazed by someone else's love for you? And then the second question, what are the hallmarks of families and churches when they are built on God's love? What are the hallmarks of families and churches when they're built on God's love? And then how can you be sure God's power rather than your own strength is working in you? How can you be sure that God's power rather than your own strength is working in you? So let me kind of walk through how does, where does this relate to you and me? How can we walk this out? How do we take this home in a sense? Uh, first thing I would point out is that you and I need God's power. You and I need God's power. All y'all American Christians, all y'all need God's power. You don't need better marketing. You don't need a better message. You don't need a compelling vision. You don't need the fog machines. You don't need all this stuff. You need God's power. There's no substitute for God's power and God's presence. Um, we've talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the principalities and powers. There's an unseen dimension to reality, the spiritual realm and the earthly realm. There's two parts to reality, 
the part that we can see and measure and has gravity working in it and all that jazz. And then there's the part that we can't see. And both are at work. And we need God's power. So when we step out in faith, we're positioning ourselves to kind of need God and have God come through. I've gotten a front row seat to this. When God has asked me to do something that I'm really not comfortable with because I like stability, I like security, I like all of those things. And I've got all the reasons why those things are biblical. <laughs> and then God will be like he did with Abraham. I want you to do X, Max. I want you to step out. And in that moment, I give God an opportunity to display his power. Um, we got a front row seat to this at the Asbury pour outpouring, didn't we? No fog machines, no lyrics on the screens, people waiting hours to get into a box to encounter what? The presence of God. There's no substitute for the presence and power of God. The second thing is the magnitude of God's love surpasses our ability to comprehend it, but when we experience it, it becomes a bedrock for us, okay? The magnitude of God's love surpasses our ability to comprehend it, but when we experience it, it becomes a bedrock of security for us. If you didn't know this, your earthly parents, my earthly parents, our earthly parents are put in our lives in part by design because God wants us to know what unconditional love is so that we're ready to hear about a God who loves us unconditionally. But your earthly parents and my earthly parents didn't live up to that in all ways, did they? No. I'm a parent now. I know this in my own life. I have not lived up to this with my own children, despite the many resolutions I had in the wake of the way in which I was parented. And yet, sin and brokenness has been part of my family life, okay? So God is not like earthly families. Uh, and when Paul is writing this letter, he wants his readers and listeners who would be hearing this scripture read in their house churches to know that God is qualitatively different. So the Ephesians were uh, just neck deep in worship of Artemis Ephesia, okay? She was a goddess who had a huge temple in the city of Ephesus, and she could be mean and capricious. Emma, she was supposed to be the guardian of all, of all women who gave birth to children. That was one of her roles. And yet, all the time, she was killing women. And they, this is part of their language and the mythology of Artemis Ephesia. And so here she is. She's supposed to be protecting women during childbirth, but instead brings sudden death to so many women. Oh, well, too bad. Sorry for you. And then Artemis Ephesia with her twin brother Apollo one day got enraged about this woman who was offending them and killed all 14 of that woman's children. All 14 of them. So the, the Greek and Roman gods could be very capricious and mean, just mean-spirited. And Paul is saying, no, 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 God, the true God, the one God who made everything, who we see so beautifully represented in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that God's not like that. That God is not mean, not capricious, but loving, long-suffering, patient. Another thing to take away out of all of this is that Christ will rule because Jesus is king. So one of the things that Paul talks about in this letter is that all y'all who are in Christ are God's temple. 
And he says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He says this, So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens along with all of God's holy people. You're members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. So we are the new temple of God where God dwells. And because of that, God calls us to be holy and, blame, holy and blameless. That's Ephesians 1.4. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us to be in Christ Jesus, to be holy and without fault in his eyes. And then that means that we're allowing Christ to reign in every area of our life. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. He says this, Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, his church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. And then it means we're ridding ourselves of the things that are sinful, these behaviors and attitudes that take root in our lives. That's chapter 4, verses 20 and following. But, isn't that, but that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you've heard about Jesus and have learned the truth comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former ways of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, righteous and holy. So that's how it's supposed to be. When God comes to dwell, God comes to rule. And just like the temple was a place where God dwelt specially among the Israelites, God had a whole lot of special things about that temple, didn't he? Right? It had to be built a certain way. Only certain people could enter at certain times of the day. Like, and, and there were all these rules and regulations. So in 2 Kings chapter 23, there, they rediscover God's word and they get convicted and one of the things that Josiah, the king of Judah, is dealing with is that in the temple in Jerusalem are also idols to Baal, Asherah, all the stars and the heavenly hosts. And get this, there are booths in the temple in Jerusalem with curtains where you can go visit a temple prostitute, just like you would any of the other deities in, in the Canaanite area. And so Josiah's like, God isn't so happy with this, and we need to get all this stuff out of the temple right quick, right? And so that's part of what happens when Christ comes to live in us, in all y'all, is that he comes as king. Um, there's a book written quite a few years ago by a, name, man, name, blah, by a man named Robert Munger called My Heart, Christ's Home. And he uses a metaphor of a house about talking about how God comes to us and lives in our individual lives. And he says, so I have this house, which is, represents my life with all of these different rooms, my desires, my hopes, my fears, my actions, my habits, uh, the things that I do regularly that are probably harmful and sinful, and all of that stuff together is my life. And Christ comes into this house and room by room, he wants to clean things up. He wants to rearrange things. He wants things to be the way he wants them to be. And with each step, he asks my permission in a speak. He says, can I 
come into the kitchen? Can I come into the living room? Can I go into this closet? And I have to give him permission and I have to say, yes, Lord, you can come into that space and you can clean it out and you can make it fit for you to dwell and to habit, right? And it, it's just a metaphor for talking about Christ's lordship. So, right, in America, we've done a really good job about talking about Jesus as our friend and that God loves us. But when Jesus comes to us, he comes as who? God, <laughs> which means that he's probably not going to set that aside. <laughs> and he's going to insist that in all our ways, in our relational ways, our sexual ways, our financial ways, our calendar ways, our spending ways, our uh, media consumption ways, in all of those ways that we will simply submit to his lordship and his kingship. Um, so again, if I can hit this on the nail, the one big idea out of this whole prayer is that you and I really experience God's love in powerful ways when we're with, in relationship, in communion with other believers, particularly who are believers who are very different from us. I've gotten a front row seat to this many different times in my life when Jenny and I were very, very young, uh, we were in small group with a lot of young couples. We could not be more different than all of those young couples. So there was uh, nerd geek Max in a room full of six other guys who wanted every single weekend to go to the UK ball game. And I was the one guy that was like, I'll go if I have to. <laughs> um, and Jenny really hit it off with another young woman in this small group named Holly. And they, they started making it the case that on every Thursday night, we would get together and have dinner together. And they had a small son, and we had a small son, and our small sons were into everything. So on that Thursday night, I would come home to a home of chaos. Toys would be everywhere. Food dishes would be everywhere, you know, and so that we could just be together and do life together. And... I did not like chaos and did not appreciate chaos back then, but I had to suffer through it for the community part of it. Um, her husband uh, became one of my best friends in my 20s. And so the first two sets of wills we ever had, if our kids were to die, guess who would get them? That couple in our church family. Burley is into sports, is athletic, works out, has arms the size of tree trunks, can hit a soccer ball with his foot and make it go exactly where he wants it to go. I can sometimes hit a ball um, if I have a large enough object and I'm given enough opportunities. <laughs> you found this out as a church family the year that you said, hey, Pastor Max, it would be great if you joined the softball team. And then at the end of that season, you said to me, hey, Pastor Max, it would be really good if you cheer from the sidelines. <laughs> okay? We could not be more different, and yet I experienced God's love in a way I hadn't yet before in my 20s in that network of relationships of people very different from me, but we were committed to each other. We were committed to loving each other, praying for each other, serving, for each, serving each other, and just being there for each other in those early days. We could not be more different, and yet there I experienced God's love.